Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. Very excited. Uh, if, if you missed last week, um, this week we're continuing in a, serve, uh, a sermon series on discipleship. On discipleship here at the beginning of the year, it makes a lot of sense. And we're excited. We feel like this is where God is leading us. It's where he's taking us. There's things that we need to really re-examine when it comes to discipleship. And we're really excited. Uh, like Kyle said, this is the beginning of the year. I don't know if you saw that, but it changed over. It's 2020. We're in a new year and we are excited for what that means for us, right? I think we all appreciate a fresh start. Do we not? We love a good fresh start. It's really nice to have a fresh start. We, we get to relook at our life and we get to, uh, commit to a, a new way of living, a better way of living, right? New exercise regimens, new budgets, new ways of eating. Anybody keto out there? Nobody, anybody. We, 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 we re-up, right? And we say, I'm going to eat right. I'm going to live well. New habits, new rhythms. This is going to be me. But unfortunately, we're the same people we were like a few weeks ago at the end of 2019. With the same uh, ingrained bad habits and issues, we're kind of the same person. So for me, the, the new year starts with a level of excitement, but it also starts with a little bit of anxiety. I'm a little anxious about uh, some things. Uh, and, and dare I say, a, a little bit of shame even. Sometimes new year meets me with some shame because I'm, I'm not who I want to be. Right. Um, I'm not who I thought I would be by now. Does that resonate with anybody? I'm not who I thought I would be by now. I, I don't know about you. There are times in my life where I look and say, man, at this age, this is what's going to be happening. This is what's going to be going on. This is where my character will be. This is where uh, my relationship with, with God will be. And I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I thought I'd be. David Brooks, in his book, Road to Character, he says it like this. A humiliating gap opens up between our actual self and our desired self. Have you experienced that? A humiliating gap? So this anxiety exists. uh, uh, It hangs over us. And we feel this undeniable urge every year at the beginning of the year to reinvent ourselves. Right? I need to reinvent ourselves myself. I need to grab a hold of a new and better vision for life. The question we have to ask ourselves is, where are we getting that vision? Where are you getting that vision? What informs you of what the good life even is? Who's telling you what it means to even flourish or grow or expand? Where are you getting that information? Who is teaching you? What is teaching you? What is discipling you? That's why we're talking about this. What things are important to pursue in this life? Even our culture gets it, right? You heard it a few years back, YOLO. We get it that, that, that life is short. We got we to live it up. We've got to grab hold. We can't miss it. We don't want to waste our life. So these are things even our culture offers us. So I can tell you this. If you don't know, culture has a really well-articulated vision for living. It exists ever before us in thousands of ways a day, giving us a vision for what the ideal life is. 
what the ideal self is. It tells you what you need to be. You could title it this, the, the comfortably entertained life. A life that pursues one enjoyable diversion after another from one worldly pursuit to the next. Success, celebrity, maybe you're just looking for some disposable income to spend on things that you desire. Self-sufficiency, self-madeness. Do we not love a good self-made story in, here, in this culture? We love it. We love it. We love that entrepreneur that made it out of nothing. Youthfulness. Winning. (laughs) And here in the South, culture doesn't even demand that you call those things those things, right? Culture says you can actually call it the blessed life. You You could call it God's blessing. You could call it God's favor even. Any title or rationalization that gets you to just fall in line. Can you just fall in line? You do you. You do what you're going to do. Just don't mess it up for everyone else, right? Don't rock the boat. We are indeed more shaped by our culture than we even know. Our vision for the spiritual life, our vision for Christian life is more shaped by this culture and its rhythms than we even know. That's a a fact. We lack vision, even as Kyle spoke last week, raise hands on what it looks like to follow Jesus in the day-to-day. We're all like, I'm not really for sure. We lack vision. We lack God's vision. And we lack this sight to say God's way is better. How Jesus' vision of life is so much more compelling than the world's. Or what's worse is we take God's vision and we take culture's vision and we somehow try to marry them and act as if they run in tandem. They run in concert with one another they can be married and this is what God says to that Isaiah 55 he says to us he says to the human race he says my ways are not your ways that's what he says to to us that's what he says to this ways my laying out a vision for life He says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. In fact, he says, my ways and my thoughts are as far as the heavens are from the earth, not even close. So what is God's way? What is the way of Jesus? Um, Last week, we rolled out this statement, and this is a statement... um, that we would like uh, a believer at the Parks Church to look like. We would like this to mark us. That we would be whole life disciples being transformed by the way of Jesus. And Kyle um, walked out a little bit of what whole life disciples means. Um, It's your entire life. It's the whole thing. There's not compartments that you can give. There's not ways that you can give, but it should be your whole entire life. And that we're being transformed. That we're not where we want to be. We're not where we think we should be. And we know it. But we are being transformed. And, and we, I was in Barnes & Noble the other day. And there is a self-transformation section. It's a lie. You can't transform yourself. God transformed you. You are being. That's something that is acted upon you. You are being transformed. And then what we're going to talk about 
today, we're going to skip the being transformed. We're going to move that to a little bit later. And what we're going to talk about is by the way of Jesus. This is what Jesus did. This was his habits. This was his way of living. This was his teachings. This is the way of Jesus. This is abiding. This is what we should follow. So we're going to break down a little bit about, or a little bit about the, the way of Jesus. Um, but we recognize here at the Parks Church that we too have a problem with discipleship. We have confusion around discipleship. We know that we're supposed to be followers of Jesus, right? If you're here, you probably are somewhat aware that you're supposed to follow Jesus. That's what being a Christian is about. But we are confused about how to follow him in the day-to-day, much less how to go and make disciples, right? These are, these are the two main instructions from Jesus, that you would be his disciple, and that what? You would go and make disciples. And what we talked about last week, the, the idea of go is, in your going, as you go, you would make disciples. In your doing, in your living, in your day-to-day, you would be making disciples. It would be your rhythm. It would be your practice to make disciples. But we, we recognize that, hey, we're a little confused on what that looks like. So last week, we examined some possible reasons why we're confused. Um, we did a bit of deconstruction. We weren't necessarily deconstructing discipleship itself, right? What we were deconstructing, and this is what I hope you get, is that we were deconstructing the current beliefs and practices of modern church models that create a confused framework or a confused understanding for biblical discipleship to flourish in. So some of the things that we touched on, we, we discussed the overemphasis of the gathered church narrative in our culture. If you've been in the South for long, you recognize that, I mean, how many flyers do you get from churches? And what is the flyer telling you? It's telling you, come to our gathering. Our gathering is this and it's that. And everything that we preach is about the gathering. And the gathering is good. The gathering is good. But as we saw last week, if we have 120 waking hours and we only spend 10 of those hours, at best, in gathering scenarios, we have 110 other hours that we exist as the scattered church. And so we need to grow in a robust understanding and and theology and practical theology of what it means to be the scattered church. Because that's 110 of our hours. That's 95% of our time we spend away from this gathering. So we can't just think really well about gathering. We also have to think really well and consider how to live outside of these gatherings. We hit on the damage of the sacred-secular divide, which is when believers categorize everything in our lives to two categories. Sacred, sacred work, sacred time, sacred places, sacred callings, to secular work, time, places, goals. It's the idea that the work of pastors and foreign missionaries and seminarians and nonprofits, that's really God's work in space, right? That's where God exists. Um, And all other times, all other spaces, all other work or jobs uh, are secular or maybe just ordinary. They're just kind of ordinary. And God does show up in those spaces, right? But it's only when you're doing something explicitly Christian or explicitly spiritual like sharing the gospel verbally with someone or giving to those in need, that's when God shows up. That's God's work. But the way of Jesus is for every believer. 
in every sector of our lives. His purposes are to flood into every compartment, every job, every conversation, every decision, every single moment of our existence, shaping us into who we are supposed to be, who we're meant to be, while also offering a vision for life to others that is full of promise and full of power. That's the beauty of the way of Jesus. So this month, we're endeavoring to course correct from some broken models, some confused thinking, so that we might live as actual disciples of Jesus and not just self-identify with belief in Jesus. It's pretty common where we live. Do you believe in God? Yeah, absolutely. You believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah. I go to church. Easter, Christmas. I, I believe in God. I, I don't... I don't have the audacity to not believe in God. That's a lot of where we live. The problem with that is that even the demons believe and tremble. What we're talking about is a whole life submission to his vision, right? We submit our entire life to his way. We submit our way to his way. Uh, I like to define maybe discipleship, and we can we'll steal from our statement uh, uh, that we've made here. Uh, I think we have it. By practicing the way of Jesus, we learn to submit. It's a big word. Submit our whole lives to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. That's how we can define. That's our working definition of discipleship. By practicing what Jesus did and what Jesus said to do, what Jesus demonstrated for us. We learn how to submit our life, how he did. Our whole life to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. But before we can truly understand being disciples and making disciples today, we really have to get a clear vision of what Jesus meant when he said that, right? Jesus was Jewish. Did you know that? Jesus was Jewish and he lived 2,000 years ago in bodily form. God, man, he lived in a Jewish context. We have Western lenses, American lenses. Jesus lived in the context and practices of a Middle Eastern first century context. It's different, drastically different than where we live, drastically different. So what we're going to examine first this morning is um, the, the invitation to discipleship in their day, in Jesus's day. This is Jesus's original call and invitation to his disciples. Jesus, this um, kind of prodigy-esque young rabbi shows up at the age of 30 from Nazareth. It's a big deal. Rabbi is just the, the word for teacher, the Jewish word for teacher. And, and, and coming from a devoutly Jewish family and upbringing, he himself growing up in the Jewish system of education According to Jewish, Jewish custom, he begins his rabbinic ministry at age 30, right? We see him baptized at age 30 and begin his ministry. As follows, his ministry begins with an invitation to a group of 12 men to become his disciples. You know that Jesus was referred to as, as rabbi or teacher over 60 times in just the four Gospels? His world revered him as a Rabbi and rabbis had disciples. At this time, there were many other rabbis. Some rabbis had five disciples, some had up to 70. 
Um, Jesus was not inventing a new thing. He wasn't inventing something when he said, be my disciple. When he's talking about discipleship. Uh, you, in fact, you can find similar practices uh, 400 years before Jesus, right? Um, Plato was a disciple of Socrates. This idea of discipleship was a known and understood process. And this is what I want us to see. This is what we should see for the process. We think about this word, that there was a clear and articulated path for the process of becoming a disciple. That's a little bit where we're confused, right? There's not necessarily a clear and articulated path on how we become disciples. But in Jesus' day, there was a really clear one. The rabbinic discipleship process was a Jewish, was the Jewish educational system of the first century. Famous Jewish historian Josephus, he said this, that above all else, we pride ourselves in the end to further children. They were really, really serious about this process. Um, and to further illustrate that, I want us to kind of take a closer look um, at the system of education that they worked in, that they were familiar with. Um, it was made up of three parts, Bet Sefer, Bet Talmud, and Bet Midrash. These were the sections of education. Um, this first one, called Bet Sefer, at the ages of 6 through 12, Jewish children began their formal education. Both boys and girls attended synagogue. Uh, they learned to read and write, and their textbook was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they wouldn't just use that as a textbook. They, they wouldn't just read it. They would memorize it. These kids were memorizing the first five books of the Bible. Um, at the conclusion of this, the boy was welcomed into the community as a full-fledged male member and, and, and began to learn the family trade. Girls would also be welcomed in uh, to the community. They would prepare for, they'd be preparing for marriage and family life. But of the boys, only the brightest and sharpest continued on in their education to Bet Talmud. So for the best of the best, the top of the class, boys ages 13 to 15, who were deemed worthy to continue their educational pursuits, went on to study and memorize the entire Tanakh, which is the Old Testament. They were to memorize the entire Old Testament, 39 books they would have in memory as well as learning the family trait. So it's noteworthy here that very few of Jesus' disciples would have made it past this section. Very few of his disciples. So he, Jesus is already showing us that, that, that it is different. There is a, another way. But uh, his disciples, probably many of them didn't make it past this. So very few were selected um, for, for Bet Talmud. Even less were selected for Bet Midrash. Um, of those that finished Bet Talmud, the very best. This was this is the elite, a handful, were uh, able to pursue this final educational piece. Um, this was the longest in duration. It went from ages 15 all the way to 30. To get into this last leg, a student must be personally invited by a rabbi. And after a grueling uh, question-driven interrogation of the boy's competency, which lasted sometimes two to three months. Can you imagine someone just going, Psalm 101, go. Recite it. Okay, what does it mean? Can you imagine just calling out, lamentations, go. And, and they would recite it and have to give clarity on what the scriptures meant. So those who were chosen for this 
were referred to as the Talmudim, which is the Hebrew word for disciples. That's where we get that word. I know this is a little history and it can be a little dry, but I think this is really important for us to see the context in which Jesus is in. Um, it, it, so this word Talmudim, disciples, which means student or learner, apprentice, one that leaves their family to follow. That's this word, disciple. They would literally follow in the dust of the rabbi, meaning that they would follow him so closely, literally, that the dust that he would kick up would be on them. And you guys have heard this. There's books that are written about the dust of the rabbi. Um, it was a literal thing that, uh, where a, a, a term was coined. But they desired to emulate him in all of his mannerisms, all of them. They would eat the same food in the same way. They would, they would walk and talk and imitate their rabbi. They would go to sleep and they would wake up how their rabbi woke up. They imitated his every move. If, if the rabbi spoke with a lisp, they would speak with a lisp. If the rabbi had an old injury from a football game, they would also walk with a limp. They would imitate every single thing about him. But most importantly, they would learn to study the Torah and understand God in the exact same way as the rabbi. Very significant. And the specific beliefs of the rabbi on the scriptures were referred to as his yoke. The yoke, teaching. So this gives us a whole new perspective on Matthew 11. Let's read Matthew 11. I think we might have it. Yeah. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my teaching upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My teachings are easy, my burden is light. The yoke of Jesus wasn't easy and light because he was nicer and softer than all the other rabbis uh, watering down the law of Moses for the common man. That's not why Jesus' way was lighter and easier. The reason why Jesus' yoke was easy and his burden light was because he himself fulfilled all the requirements of the Jewish law perfectly, giving to us that perfect record. It's a big deal. You know why it's a big deal? James 2.10. James 2.10 says this, If you break one of God's laws, it's as though you're guilty of breaking them all. Jesus did it all perfectly and then gave it to us. He did what we couldn't do in a million lifetimes, setting on us not a yoke of religion, but a yoke of grace. This is why Jesus is teaching. His way is light. His burden is easy. This is why. So, we see how this term disciple, follower of Jesus, is hardly recognizable from its original context, right? I go to an adult Bible study. Imagine if Jesus showed up today and he says, hey, come follow me. Come be my disciples. What would it look like? What would we say? We say, I do follow you. I do. I follow you on all social media platforms where you post stuff. I podcast you on my way to work sometimes. It's great. Oh, I love your podcast. So helpful for me. So encouraging. I feel inspired to live a great life. I love 
following you. I actually go to a local church regularly every Sunday. Well, unless the Cowboys are playing, then I, I, I do take a break then. But every other day, I'm, I'm, every other Sunday, I'm there. Right? Well, un, unless I need a self-care. Some Sunday mornings, I just need a self-care day, you know? Jesus, you know my heart. We get each other. You know, you know. This is fun, this is fun for me. Uh, oh, okay. Um, Jesus, sometimes we even gather in Bible studies and, and we study your words. And we ask questions like, what does this scripture mean to you? And then we just talk about our opinion. We ask questions like, I wonder if Jesus is okay with Game of Thrones. It's different. It's very different. What Jesus was laying out is very, very different than what we see practiced a lot of today. I want us to look and see what his original invitation was to what it looked like when he actually asked his disciples to follow him. Passing alongside, this is Mark uh, chapter 1, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. This was what they did. This was their trade, the family trade. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You will become fishers of men. Jesus wasn't being cheeky here and going, hey, you're fishing for fish. Why don't you come fish for men? This is a thing that rabbis said. It's like, I'm going to teach you a way to capture the heart of, of men. And you'll be persuasive because you'll, you'll preach my yoke. I'm going to teach you a way to be persuasive and compelling and captivating. This is a way that they said that. And verse 18, and what? Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little far, farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were uh, in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called out to them. And what did they do? They left their father in the boat with the hired hands. Mark chapter 2. This is to Levi, who's Matthew. We know as Matthew. As he passed by, he saw Levi, which is Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. He was a tax collector. Uh, And he said to him, follow me. And he rose from his profession. He rose from his tax table and he followed him. These men obviously had a clear understanding of what they were agreeing to, on who they were agreeing to follow. They had a clear framework, a well-articulated path. Um, And how we know that is that they responded to Jesus immediately. They knew what they were signing up for. They left their profession without even, almost, it it seems like they didn't even consider it. They're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm there. So I want us to see how big of a deal it was to be, uh, the Talmudim of a rabbi. Imagine if Mark, well, Warren Buffett, let's start there. Warren Buffett shows up, you're in business, and he goes, hey, why don't you come and, and live with me? And you can be in every phone call, every business call, every business meeting I'm in, and I will show you and teach you how to do business, how to become a billionaire. As a business person, would you jump at that? Maybe you're into tech and Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs, when he was alive, comes to you and says, hey, I want to show you how to run a tech company. Come be with me and I'm going to show you how to start a really successful tech company. Maybe it's Bono saying, come play tambourine in you too. I think we would all 
want to travel the world playing tambourine, right? At least I would want to play tambourine, and you too. It would be something that we would, we would jump at. We would be excited for. It was the pinnacle invitation or calling in the culture that Jesus lived in. But here's the deal. Jesus wasn't just a rabbi. He was and is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And what we find is that these guys, they, they knew. They, they, had a, a, they had a clue into who this Jesus was, um, especially Andrew and Peter. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. I don't know if you remember this, but at Jesus' um, baptism, God the Father, the Holy Spirit all show up in one. It's amazing. And uh, some of John the Baptist's disciples say, hey, I'm going to follow him. It's a really big deal. And the reason why is because John the Baptist's testimony to all of Israel and to all the world was, this is no ordinary rabbi. This is the long-awaited Messiah. I want us to look. Then something truly remarkable happens. Truly remarkable. In Mark 8, I want us to look at it. Jesus then called the crowd to him along with his disciples. So he's standing there with his disciples. And he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple. Looking at the crowd, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus was looking at women. He was looking at children. He was looking at Jews. He was looking at Gentiles, and he was inviting them in to be his Talmudim. This is a culture rocking, shaking, shifting moment. With the word whoever, Jesus is rejecting some of the norms of this patriarchal society. He's rejecting some of the norms of this deeply Jewish nationalistic society. And the kingdom of God was coming to earth. A massive shift. So that was the invitation in his day. Let's look at what, what is it now? What is it now? We're seeing that being called to be Jesus' disciple was way more significant than we know. The modern usage of the term discipleship seems so detached from its original context. Right? Is that just me? It seems so detached from its original context. It almost seems... Laughable. What, like, what are we doing? We used this quote last week. It's from Mark Green. God, on the current missional strategy of the evangelical church, to recruit the people of God to use some of their leisure time to join the mission initiatives of church-paid workers. Does that make you itchy? Does that bother you? That bothers me. That like really bothers me. To recruit the people of God to use some of their leisure time, if you have time, if it works with your schedule to follow Jesus in this way, would you come do what we're doing? We're going to establish some groups and da 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 da. It's just a shadow of what it originally meant. But in spite of that, in spite of the deconstruction that needs to take place in my heart, because there is a lot. In spite of the deconstruction that needs to take place in all of our hearts, in this church, Jesus beckons us on. And he says, come and be with me. He says, come be my disciples. Come practice my ways. My ways actually transform you. So in light of what we just went through, um, how is this really possible? Okay, so these guys had Jesus with them for three years. They were living, they were literally with him 
bodily for three years, 24-7. And they were able to ask him questions and dialogue and say, hey, what do you, what do you mean by this? And is, does this work this way? And is this okay? And uh, should we think about it in this way? They were able to do that with Jesus himself. They didn't figuratively follow Jesus. They literally followed him. And even still, they had trouble understanding. They had trouble obeying. Submitting was the deal. It's a lot of pride. What hope do we really have? If we are to be with Jesus, how do we do this when he's not here? I, I, I hate to break it to you, and you've probably been told this, but Jesus is not in your heart. Jesus is actually at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf. Father, look at them. I love them. I died for them. He's interceding. That's where Jesus is. Jesus gives us a really great answer in John 14. Let's take a look at it. John 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, an advocate. A way to translate is another like me. Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give to you another like me to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot see, cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It's the spirit of God, believer, that dwells in you. Verse 25, he says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still here, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, the another like me, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things, all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus says, it's better for me to go away so that you may have another like me to be with you always. It's good news. It's good news, believer. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells with us and in us to show us how to follow in the way of Jesus. He shows us. This is the modern context for Jesus's invitation to us to be my disciples. Whoever wants to follow me, whoever wants to be my disciples, this is the context that the Holy Spirit, the advocate, will be with you and show you all that you need to know. The Holy Spirit is how we abide in Jesus puts legs to that idea of abiding. We learn, so we learn and grow and are transformed by being with God, right? We know this. And we are with God via the Holy Spirit. So we have the testimony of Jesus's life, his words, his practices here on earth in the scriptures. And we now have his Holy Spirit to guide us in the way we should go. I don't I don't believe that's probably really new information to you. I think most, most of you probably know that you have the Holy Spirit now. Jesus is no longer walking among us. We understand that. And the Holy Spirit is supposed to be our comfort and our guide. He's supposed to teach us that. So we ask, how do these deep spiritual realities actually manifest into our day-to-day life? How do they manifest into rhythms and practices of a believer in 2020. 
What does a believer in 2020 look like? I want to suggest to you that the primary means in which this constant transaction takes place between us and the Holy Spirit is through the spiritual disciplines. That's the means. That's where this takes place. The spiritual disciplines were Jesus's practices. This is what Jesus did. His life was marked by the same rhythms and practices available to us today. We have, we have those available to us today. That wasn't some mysterious thing that he was doing that Jesus did, but that is now also available to us today. When we say practicing the way of Jesus, this is what we're talking about. And, and here's some of the spiritual disciplines. They're not, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's some of them. Practicing prayer. Practicing prayer constantly. The Sabbath, having a rhythm of rest that is woven into our week and protecting a time of rest, not letting that be the leftovers. The sacraments, taking communion with one another is a discipline. Silence and solitude. How's that going for everybody? A lot of silence in your life, a lot of solitude. Secrecy, protecting information. Celebration, fasting is a spiritual discipline. Bible reading and study, we know this one. Um, Community, belonging somewhere, regardless of how hard it is, regardless of the vision lacking or not. You're in, you're committed, you belong somewhere. Confession, this is the only one that Jesus didn't do because he had nothing to confess, right? It's perfect, it was spotless, it was sinless. But we confess. We confess to him first. And then we confess to our brothers and sisters. And we are known. The disciplines help you be able to be known and know one another. Worship. Hospitality. Your table, your home. Is a a utensil in the hand of God. Dallas Willard describes the disciplines in this way. The disciplines are activities of mind and body purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and total being into effective cooperation with the divine order. They're activities of mind and body. We are not just souls, but we're embodied souls. So our body counts. And the spiritual disciplines is how we posture ourselves, mind and body, to access the Holy Spirit, to be before God. They're how he abides. It's within the disciplines that we're transformed into the likeness of our Jesus. So, a note, spiritual transformation in our lives, it cannot happen apart from God's work and power. Okay? These are the means, these practices are the means in which this takes place. Richard Foster in Celebration of Discipline, he calls it the means of God's grace. The disciplines are the means of God's grace to us. So to be clear, word of caution as the disciplines and, and Kyle did an awesome job. He avoided a lot of the how this is getting into the how it's getting into things to do. And we have a, a, a broken tendency here. These practices themselves do not transform us. OK, if you do these things. Just to do them, they don't transform you. God transforms you. OK. 
The disciplines simply position us before the Lord to be transformed. If we endeavor to do the disciplines in some effort to be pious or earn favor with the Lord, we've missed the point completely and will neither be disciples nor know God. The way of Jesus is marked, friends, with lots and lots of intentional effort. It's not a passive thing, but there's not an ounce of earning involved. We know that our salvation in Jesus Christ is a free gift, a completely free gift from God. Okay? So we're going to land here. If scripture reading, regular scripture reading, prayer, fasting, Sabbath rest, silence, if the practices of Jesus are absent from your life, And, and this is the way that we're before God. This is the way that we know God. If those things are absent, this is how we get God's vision. Who are you being discipled by? Who's training you? Who's educating your heart? What are you putting ever before your eyes and heart day after day? What form of crossbreed Christianity are we participating in? Surely there's more to life than seeking meaning from promotions and the temporary rewards of upward mobility. Surely there's more to life than seeking fulfillment in toned bodies and youthful skin. Surely there's more to life than retirement security and plans to travel. Surely there's more to life than mind-numbingly entertaining ourselves night after night, weekend after weekend, looking for something. You are looking for something. I am desperately looking for something in all of those things. And what you're looking for, what I'm looking for, is communion with our Heavenly Father. In all of our pursuits, You are, look, your heart is bent because this is why you were made. This is why you are, you exist is so that you might have communion with your maker. You might have communion with your heavenly father. He loves you and is beckoning you. Come. But we know this is hard. We know this is not easy, right? Do you know that? Because I feel like this is not easy. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm in this like a lot. It's not easy. In fact, the word of God says about the way of Jesus that it's a narrow one. And that few will find it. The way of Jesus is a narrow way. And few will find it. Believer, we must remember that we are not, you are not, I am not in a physical battle against time and circumstances that befall us. But we are in the middle of a raging, supernatural, spiritual battle for your soul. That's where you are. And we have three distinct enemies. And and, and we're going to talk more about this. We're going to talk more about the disciplines, what they are, more about the enemy. Um, But you have three distinct enemies enemies to your faith, to the spiritual life, um, the world and its ways, the rhythm of the world. That is an enemy 
to your soul. Your flesh, you are your own enemy. Your sinful nature is an enemy to your soul and spiritual formation in your life. And then the devil and his schemes. All three actively working day in and day out to keep you from communion with your father. Always working. They don't take days off. And in fact, when you start talking about this stuff, they get really active. This is the stuff that bothers the enemy. Us just going to church and going to events and and self-identifying with belief in Jesus does not scare the enemy. In fact, he's okay with that type of complacency. He wants to keep you numb, distracted. He wants you to waste your life. He wants you to waste your breath. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We have no hope against these things apart from the protection and provision of God and His transformative power changing us from the inside out. So I'm going to try to say what I've been saying maybe a little more succinctly in in a statement here. Um, So listen in. Closing. Um, My prayer is this. That we wake up and see that a casual understanding of discipleship leads to a feeble practice of the disciplines, which consequently positions us ever before the world. Our minds and hearts, then entangled in habitual sin and worldly rhythms, are ultimately discipled by the devil himself. There is no neutral ground. There is no neutral ground. There's no cruise control for the spiritual life. There is none. There's no middle section. We are in a battle for our soul. Jesus says this, whoever finds his life will ultimately lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And like what we shared, whoever wants to follow me, whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves. Pick up the cross. What he's saying is that what frees us from the tyranny of self-reliance and self-fulfillment is actually found in self-denial. What will free you from the vicious cycle? What will free me from the vicious cycle that we find ourselves in of self-fulfillment? It's in me. It's, I got to look deeper and deeper. I got to get to my core. What will free you from that tyranny is denying yourself and killing your vision for life. Dying to yourself. Dying to your way. And believing in your heart of hearts that God's way is the right way. That God's way is the one that will lead to flourishing for your life. He made you. He knows exactly what you need to flourish and grow and be who you are meant to be. Be who he created you to be. He knows, but we have to deny ourselves and deny our vision for life. Lay that crap down and pick up his vision, his way. It's a posture of humility. God will use your brokenness and he will work through your brokenness. But what does God say about pride? It says God opposes the proud, 
If you approach God humbly, he will work through your brokenness. That does, that, that does not scare him. Your pain, what's been done to you, what you've done, that does not scare God. That does not push God away. But you know what does push his vision away? is pride. The Bible says he opposes the proud. So this question remains. This is the last thing. How will we ever find Jesus' vision for our lives if we're never really with him? If the only time you're with God is in this room or in an occasional Bible study, an occasional practice group, you won't. I know that's bad news and that wrecks maybe some of your vision, but you will not get his vision for your life. What you do is you will project onto him what you think he should be to you. All the while adopting the culture that is fed to you day after day. And you will affectionately call it Christian. Okay. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that is moving and working and building your church. Thank you for letting us friends and family and this community find a place where we can belong and talk about things that are hard and talk about your way and not our way, God. I pray that you would lead us and you would lead this church, God. We don't want to waste our life. But you have made our heart beat and our lungs breathe poured out vision and you give us a way so let us lay down the practices and rhythms that we've picked up from this world and let us pick up your way Jesus' way God let us be so hungry for him that it just ruins us to any other thing pray that we vomit up the fast food fixes of our culture and we would begin to dine on the richest affairs the richest foods Jesus show us Holy Spirit lead us allow us to approach you and this process that you're taking me through us through with humility we love you Jesus and it's in your name we pray Amen.